And so I want to warn you before we read this that uh, the words I'm about to read is like Paul casually walking through what now is a cultural, is a, is a minefield culturally. And he's just kind of like skipping zippity-doo-dah and he's going through this minefield and things are bl- like lethal weapon three style blowing up left and right. Because in the space of a few verses, he makes claims that to the modern ear sound like fingernails on a chalkboard. And just in the space of a few sentences, marriage between one husband and one wife, he says there are, there are distinctive roles for the husband and the wife in that marriage. And he talks, he seems to start talking about slavery without ever addressing the elephant in the room of shouldn't we get rid of this instead of just telling servants how to obey their masters. So be prepared when you hear these things. And my, my request to you, and I want to ask you straight up is, will you listen? Will you listen? Uh, will you restrain that reflexive sense of, this is ridiculous, this is antiquated. Give it a fair hearing and make your decision. But we're going to try to read the Bible on its terms tonight. And if you've been around RUF for a while, you know when hard passages come up, we still, we still talk about them. We don't kind of like skip ahead and say, well, actually, we're going to finish up this series now. We're going to talk about this tonight as friends and have a conversation. So this might feel a little bit different than some of these weeks here, but uh, this is the word of God. This is Paul's uh, continuation of what we've been talking about. Colossians three seventeen through 4, 1. And whatever you do in word or deed, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, don't provoke, don't irritate your children, lest they become discouraged, lest you break their spirit. Bond servants or slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your great reward. You are, receiving, you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray. Jesus, for all the reasons that I just said, we especially uh, ask you tonight to come and teach. Your word is eternal, but it happened in a historical moment. And so we have 2,000 years of sediment that is hardened over these things and 2,000 years of culture changes that we need your help tonight to see your heart, to see your goodness, to see your gospel in words that may not sound very good to us or words that might sound confusing. Help me, so inadequate for the task, help me and make yourself beautiful. I ask this in your name, amen. Well, I just mentioned this, but there's been 2,000 years of sediments, like bones, that kind of dust storms and and other storms, and just history itself creates this sediment on top of these things that begins to harden, which means for us to come along now, like if you want to go dig something up from that old, you've got to dig and you've got to excavate and you've got to sometimes jackhammer some stuff that is hardened over these things. And so we've got to do that tonight to make sure that we read the Bible in its terms and we don't read in our opinions and our sensibilities as 
moderners in the West into the Bible. Because then you're not hearing from God, you're hearing from yourself through his word. So that's why we gotta do this tonight. So let's jump right in. Why is this, what I just read, so hard for us to hear? And I say us because these are multiple places. Um, He's not just talking about marriage. He's not just talking about family. He's talking about work or these unjust systems of slavery as well. I think there's a few reasons this is hard for us. This won't be exhaustive. You might have reasons that don't apply here or that I don't think of, but at least one reason this is hard for us to hear is the variety of experiences in the room with this stuff. Particularly the first thing, wives submit to your husbands, because I would imagine there's a, there's a handful of you in the room who have come out of families where you would love it uh, if the guy you marry one day is like your dad, because the way he cherished and loved and pursued and honored and respected and valued your mom and her thoughts and her opinions and her contributions, you're like, I'll take that any day. I wish more people had that experience. That's probably rare. Some of you might have had a passive dad, if a dad was even in the picture at all. He never initiated, he never made decisions, he never led, he never protected the family, and so someone had to, whenever there's a vacuum, it gets filled. Someone had to step into the fray And you saw the effects of that, a tired, exhausted mom who you know doesn't maybe really respect your dad. Or maybe maybe a grandmother or a grandfather became nagging to the other person because the abdication of taking care of a family. Maybe that's your story. Maybe your mom or your dad was never in the picture to begin with for whatever reason, sickness or death or abandonment or divorce. But we've all spent at least 18 years in a house observing marriage. Mom and dad, husband and wife doing their thing. And we've, we've drawn conclusions from that. And we bring that to this passage. And not just because of our experiences with what we grew up with in the house, but our experiences, if you grew up in the church, there's gotta be a significant number of us in the room too who've, who've heard these passages horribly mishandled by the church, which would usually look like extending things that Paul says far beyond what he ever intended and turning a very limited, narrow um, application of what love in a marriage looks like from wives submit to your husbands to women submit to men or women work in the house. And those have been abused and misused and mangled and either you've, you've believed that and it's diminished you and held you back or you have not believed that and it's pissed you off. And even hearing this words, again, fingernails on a chalkboard. Another thing, it's not just the personal experiences that all of us bring to here that we've gotta be sensitive about. We've gotta pay attention to them, but we've gotta make sure they're not standing over the Bible interpreting the Bible for us. We've gotta make sure the Bible's standing over those experiences, making sense of them. The other thing is culture. There's at least two gigantic pieces of the cultural waters that we swim in. In the past 150 years, it's not new, but radical Western individualism. If you're here tonight and you grew up in a, in a non-Western culture or your parent, first generation, your parents, maybe grandparents who raised you were from China or India or somewhere in Africa or the Southern Hemisphere, this, is, this passage, you hear it very differently than the rest of us. There's a lot in here that's totally par for the course. You don't even wink at it. But for Westerners 
who have increasingly through the generations bowed deeper and deeper at the altar of autonomy and equating things like freedom or independence with total autonomy. This is really hard for us now, partly because of our culture. It blinds us to being able to hear this on its terms, and we hear these things and they grade against them. Radical Western individualism, what it does is it reduces everything in life to the individual and his or her happiness. So marriage gets reduced only to, am I happy with this person or not? When I'm not, I move on. What can they do for me? Think about how you think of potential marriage one day if you think you want to get married. It's in me. Man, Anna too, I think we both, you'll, do you find yourself when you think about marriage one day, man, who is that other person? How awesome is it going to be to have her or to have him? What is she going to do for me? What is he going to do for me? How much time do you think about who you could be for that person? What changes you could be pursuing now in your life to better serve that person 10 or 15 years down the road? You see what individualism has done to us? It's reduced everything in life to me. And am I happy? Do I like it or do I not like it? School becomes all about happiness. Do I like this? Do I not like it? Jobs, we flee as soon as we don't like it anymore. And this is, we're seeing now fracturing a society because a society is a communal thing. It explains a lot of the loneliness now and a lot of the difficulty with hearing these things. And again, if you didn't grow up in this culture, you hear this with a whole different set of ears than we do. We aren't playing with a full deck of cards. And our friends from the East are. It's a communal culture where they come from. They get it. They've been living it. They know that every family member has a different role to play, has a piece of the action, works in concert in coordination with the others. And maybe happiness is not the only altar that they bow down at. The other two reasons that we'll actually spend more time talking about because they come from the passage is misunderstanding what this passage means is a really big reason. This can grate against us and it could just get dismissed or it can bother us or confuse us. And then lastly, ignorance about the original context. Reading this as if it was dropped out of the sky in 2018 and not, you know, probably in 50 or 60 AD when it was. And so just completely taking it out of context and hearing it with our ears, not the ears of the original audience. And so that's the excavation we got to do in the next few minutes. Why do we have to do it? What happens if you don't? I was, we have a community group leaders meeting yesterday morning, every Tuesday morning, and I was talking um, to uh, the girls who were there, and the, the guys were participating in the conversation, but I was asking them, how do you hear this stuff? How long has this been a sensitive topic for you? And people are saying, since I was 12, since middle school, and I think, I want to say this to the guys in the room, um, we've got to appreciate that for folks who are not the dominant culture in this country, and for women in this country, um, every day of your conscious life is spent perceiving everything that happens in a very different way than someone like me would. And you notice slights, you notice subtleties. I was talking to a woman one time, I was talking to a group of pastors, and she said she and her husband were in seminary at the same time, this rigorous grad program, and everyone would always ask her, hey, what program is your husband in? Or are you here visiting or sitting in with him? She said it was so degrading that nobody assumed I was there for me. Nobody assumed I got in. Nobody assumed master's uh, seminary degree was, was, was beneficial for me. They just assumed I was here visiting. 
We've got to appreciate that's every day. And that this stuff is sensitive not because people are wimps, but because there are great injustices baked into these, these cultural things. And so when we don't deal, when we don't do the excavating work here, when we don't dig in, when we just push it away, or when it crushes us, and is another piece of evidence of why the Bible's patriarchal, or it doesn't, it's not kind of in tune with the times, that's what happens. Some of us grow very angry. Martin Luther King Jr. said, a riot is the voice of the unheard. And we can either riot and protest verbally, or we can riot and protest on the inside and it just eats away. And you see these countercultural movements. You see feminism and you see the countercultural to that of hypermasculinism or all these celebrity guys going around now hosting conferences everywhere talking about men need to be men. And it's just the pendulum. It goes over here and it misses the truth and it goes over here and it misses the truth. And these are the things that happen. Or perhaps you've tuned it out completely. Chesterton famously said, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. This perhaps for you is an issue that's been found difficult and left unthought about. Not something that was truly thought about. And so again, let's dig. What could we do? Um, I guess where's the first place we dig? Let's talk about the context of this. And the context is the early Christian church. And what I'm about to talk to you might seem a little luxury because this is, this is secular historians, this is the historical consensus. Early Greco-Roman culture in the first three or four centuries was oddly, predominantly men. It was like Georgia Tech. It was about, like, they've dug up census records, they've dug up city accounts of the men and the women in a certain place, and they estimate 65 or greater percent of the Greco-Roman culture in the first few centuries were men. Why? Abortion was not only practiced, but it was legal, and it often took the wife of the mother too, so that knocks out two lives. And then you have uh, infanticide, which was also, they didn't have ultrasounds. Nobody knew if you were going to be delivering a girl or a boy until it was delivered. And so common Greco-Roman practice is if it's a girl, put her on the street or take her to the woods. There was a study, they, um, they found a scroll with a list of a, the population of a city and the generations, the kids that came out of that city and out of 170 families, only six of them had more than one girl in the family. That's not biology, that doesn't happen. That is on a massive scale, eradication of women killing women, either in utero or after they're born, putting them in the woods, putting them on the street. Maybe with the cleansing conscience hope that someone might take care of this child, but no, again, in that culture, who would want a woman was the thinking. She can't be an heir. She can't be a property owner. She is property. She can't take over the family business. And so women were of no value. Most women were married by age 12 or soon after because dads wanted to get rid of them. They were a burden on the family. That was Greco-Roman culture. That was what the world was like in the first century when Jesus is ascending to heaven and commissioning his church to go into all the world proclaiming that there is a God who has come to save sinners. And he has reconciled men to women, black to white, Greek to Jew, barbarian to cultured person. 
That was the landscape. And so when the Christian church comes on the scene, not only the conversion rates were just totally skewed, women flocked to Christianity. Pagan women, non-Christian women, women who were worshiping the Greek pantheon flocked to the church to take refuge in this Jesus who met with women and talked to women and dignified women. And this gospel and this New Testament that exalted women and said women are as united to Jesus as men are. It completely equals the playing field and doesn't say, well, you're a Christian now, so treat her just a little better, saying she is as grafted in to the Son of God and alive and resurrected as you are. And women are featured prominently in the New Testament accounts. Time doesn't allow to go through all of them. But the picture of women in the New Testament and the old is not the hands clasped, never talking, introverted, tender-hearted, hyper-feminine, never contributes her opinion, has nothing to really add, kind of wears a ton of clothes to not show her body. That's nowhere to be found in the Bible. What to the contrary is shown in the Bible from Proverbs, from Genesis, from Proverbs all the way forward is industrious women, bread-winning women, business-savvy women, strong women, women who take responsibility in the home. Timothy, Paul's right-hand man, his conversion is attributed to his mom and his grandmother, not any men in his family. Women had positions of leadership in the early church. They were, in, they were responsible for in, the entire mercy ministry of the new church in Jerusalem and these other cities, taking care of thousands of widows and orphans. Paul had right-hand men and Paul had right-hand women. Phoebe was one of them who went with the, with the letter to the Romans to help explain it and disseminate it. That was women in the New Testament and all these women in Greco-Roman culture who didn't have a voice, didn't have power, were denigrated, were looked down on, were dishonored, saw this. And they're like, what is this place? Who are these people? Who is this God who values me and says I bear his image? And not just that, but for biological reasons, Christians were not aborting their babies. They were not letting their little girls out on the street or taking them to the woods. And so guess what? You had a natural population distribution. Moms weren't dying in abortion procedures. The church was like UGA, massively skewed towards women, except more so, 65, 70% of the early church was women. And so you gotta know that that had an effect too on the voice that women had, the ownership that they had in this movement of the church across the nations. This is what happened, friends. This was the reality of the early church. These are the people that the Apostle Paul is speaking to, a room largely full of women who finally had a voice, finally had a home, finally had men who were called by Jesus himself to love them and honor them and take care of them and work alongside them. That's what's happening here. So that's, that's the context of this passage. What does the passage mean? Remember, we're talking about the things that trip us up from understanding it. That's the context. What does this passage mean? Again, I don't have time to read all of this, but if you have a Bible, flip one letter prior to Ephesians. Very similar letter to Colossians, except a little bit expanded. This is like the Cliff's Notes versions of Ephesians. Paul talks a little bit more extensively about husbands loving your wives and wives submitting to husbands. Um, or actually, before we get there, let me, let me point this out at this passage. Verse 17, 
is the verse, it's the umbrella that stands over all of these other commands. And whatever you do, Christians, he's talking to, men and women, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he starts saying, like, do this, do this, do this. And he's saying what we talked about two weeks ago, if you were here, when we talked about, you know, that typecast thing, God has broken the typecast. We were Jim Carrey who did Dumb and Dumber and Lloyd Christmas and Ace Ventura, but now we're in this new complex three-dimensional role. But we remember the Ace Ventura character and we're slowly trying to forget those lines and to learn these new lines and inhabit this new character and this new role. And Paul is saying, your new role and your new script, your new lines is everything you do, do in the name of Jesus, your Redeemer. It's a complete revolutionary reordering of every piece of your life. Everything is reordered around what pleases the Lord, what makes much of Him, what honors Him. Well, what does that look like in marriage? This, Paul says, this is your new role, husbands, not as a domineer patriarch like the Greco-Roman culture where whatever you said flew. You don't like your wife one day, you say, get out. That was a legal divorce in that culture. Not so in the New Testament church. This is the new role for men. To care for your wife and your kids. To stay. To remain loyal. To be faithful. This was the new role for women, the new script, what Jesus, what it looks like, Christ in you in marriage, what it looks like for Jesus to relate to your spouse. And this is the stuff that collides with that individualism I was talking about earlier because it's so, it's so out there. But the big picture of this passage and in Ephesians 5 where Paul talks about this, Paul is calling. You can't get around it. Peter says it too. Wives, submit to your husbands. What does that mean? It means honor your husband. And again, we're talking wives and husbands, not men and women. Honor your husband. Give him space to take ownership. Give him space to take initiative and to make the first move. I have heard so many stories over the years from you and from others, from people It's never a good situation when there's a man who will not make decisions, right? Am I right? Indecisive men are men people don't respect, who are scared, who are afraid to act, and who ends up bearing the fear and the anxiety and the pressure when the husband won't act? The family, and they feel it. And this is why kids and wives oftentimes don't respect men who otherwise our great guys, is because they won't, take, they won't take one for the team. They won't stick their neck out. They won't take initiative. Submission uh, means that. It does not mean you don't contribute. It does not mean you don't bring to bear all of your resources and your education and your opinions and your insights and the things you're amazing at that your husband might be horrible at. It doesn't mean he has the final say in everything. It doesn't mean that he takes every decision. It doesn't mean that, that he, it, his way is the highway. We think about decision-making when we think about this passage. Anna and I will tell you, seven years only, but I'll tell you, do you know how incredibly rare ties are in a marriage? 
babe, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? What should we do? What should we do? In seven years, two times. And one time, we went with my decision. And we bought a house. Anna was nine months pregnant. It was very scary. But Anna slept like a baby that night. And I tossed and turned. And I was racked with fear. Is this going to work out? I bore the burden. The second time, it was Anna's decision. She's better positioned to make this decision. We talked about it. We prayed about it. That's the normal course of how you, how you get past, I want to do this, I want to do that. You talk about it. You pray about it. You say, who's better equipped at this thing to make the decision? Okay, babe, you are. You do it. Or you are. You do it. But sometimes you talk about it, you pray about it, you get all the counsel, you talk, you talk, you talk, and you're still like, I want to do this and I want to do that. I think we should do this, I think we should do that. This is wise, and she says, that's wise. What do you do? Paralysis results if you stay there. Or you begin to both leave each other, and you go your own way, and a fracture in the marriage occurs. That's the alternative. Paralysis and no more forward movement of a family or a fracture where a wife and a husband begin to distrust each other and move apart from each other. But these decisions where there are ties are, we have experienced so extremely rare. And there are times when I've said, I think we need to do this for the sake of protecting our family when we went my way. And there's times when it's like, Anna is much better equipped and positioned and has more skin in the game of the outcome of this decision. She needs to, we need to go with what she wants to do. That is what decision-making looks like with a husband leading a wife and a wife submitting to a husband. Other than that, I don't think it has much of an effect. It's the wife uses what she's awesome at to serve the weakness of her husband, to help him, to serve him. And the husband uses what he's strong at to serve his wife and to help her. And the ironic thing about the Christian ethic for marriage is that Paul says explicitly, wives, submit to your husbands. And then he says to husbands, husbands, sacrifice your lives for your wives. And I think it's appropriate and warranted to use a synonym there and to say, husbands, submit yourselves to your wives. Isn't that what sacrifice is? Isn't that what laying aside your interests, your prerogatives, your desires, isn't, is that a fair synonym? Husbands, lay down your wives, husbands, lay down your lives for your spouse just as Christ gave away his lives, submitted himself to the needs of the church. The husband is called to submit to the needs of the wife and the family, and the wife is called to submit. This all becomes this spiral of submission. Two people moving to the back of the line to prioritize and better equip and serve the other. Do you want to be in a marriage like that? I do. We have a taste of that now, and we have a long way to grow and a long way to learn, but I want that. A wife who's thinking through how to serve and help me in all of my weaknesses, all the places I blow it, and me doing that to her, and me saying, no, 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 Anna, you first, and her saying, no, 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 Ben, you first. I want that life. That's what's distinct. Nobody else was saying this stuff in the Greco-Roman world. There were these household codes. Everyone was saying women submit. No one was saying husbands love and cherish your wives In Ephesians 5, where Paul says this, there's one line that says, wives, submit to your husbands, and 10 lines saying, husbands, love, cherish, protect, sacrifice, lay down your life for your wives. Do you see? This is gospel equality. 
And I'll take this over equality that flattens out the glories and the beauties and the distinctive goodness of maleness and femaleness any day. I want this. I don't want something that denies the beauty of your womanness and denies the glory of maleness. I want unity and diversity, and I think you do too. I think you really want it. And this is the only way you get it is if your marriage and your relationships are about something bigger than your happiness, something bigger than you insisting on your rights and your prerogatives. Me first, me first. Nobody wants that marriage. Some of us have seen that marriage embodied by our parents growing up, and none of us want it. But this is depicted as a dance of mutual deference, mutual submission, and in those extremely rare moments when the family comes to a brick wall, God says to the, to the husband, you move first, you stick your neck out, you take one for the team, you serve your family by charging that hill first. Don't make them take the risk for you, don't make them bear the burdens for you, you do it. And the husband in marriage plays the role of Jesus in that, who takes one for the team, who sticks his neck out there for the sake of the family, for his people, who lays down his life and submits everything to what you needed him to do and what I needed him to do. And the wife in a marriage also plays the role of Jesus, the ironic thing, submitting herself, just as Jesus, who is equal with God the Father, completely equal, the same substance, the same glory as God the Father, willingly submits himself because he trusts the Father and he loves the Father. That's how the gospel happened, is submission. And that is what marriage looks like for the Christian. And it is so, 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 so different than what's going on anywhere else. And this only grows in the soil of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't grow in any other soil. Next week we'll come back and we'll talk about some of the places this stuff goes off the track. What about abuse? What about dads or husbands or wives who aren't on board with this? And we'll talk about parents and children and we'll talk about slaves and masters and what we do with those verses. Let's pray. Jesus, the gospel is that you have voluntarily, willingly submitted yourself to our needs. You did not insist on your rights you had a right to call legions of angels to take you off that cross. You had a right to let that cup of wrath that was due to us pass from you. You had a right to do what Peter said and far be it from you, Lord, to suffer and die. You're the king. You had a right. And you laid all of those down and you submitted yourself for our prospering and our thriving and our flourishing. And we are alive and we are loved because of that. And we want you to make us into people who, whether it's a spouse or a friend or a roommate or a child or a parent or a coworker, we want to be people who are so free of ourselves, so free of our idols, that we can give away the most precious thing we have, our lives. Do this for us, we pray in your name, amen.